This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Uh, the Old Testament story of Esther is a fascinating chapter in the history of the people of God, the people that he chose to be his own, the Jewish people. Uh, while Esther is a, it's a historical account, um, it's also interwoven with spiritual truth. And, and, and I want you to remember this. Just because the Bible centers, stories center around people, as we've been looking at in the series this summer on life-changing stories, just because the stories center around people does not mean that these people had it all together, that they were perfect in any way. Sometimes we want to look at Bible characters and think that they were like super saints, and these people were not. The two Jewish characters in the story didn't do everything the way God would have wanted. They broke laws. They stepped out of bounds. And yet in the end, God, even though he isn't mentioned, God is not mentioned in this book, in the entire book. Nothing is said about God. And we find that odd. We find that strange. But just because he isn't mentioned, even though he's not, he kept his promises to the Jewish people. And we'll see that. God promised that through them. He promised this way back. But he started with, the, with uh, Abraham, their father, their forefather. And he promised them that through them the Messiah would come. And God gave them a land that would always be their home. Can I say that again? God gave the Jewish people a land that will always be their home. Always, eternally. He keeps his promises, even though if he must overcome human efforts to interfere with them, even if he must overcome, and he does, he does in my life, I don't know about yours, human mistakes that he has to overcome. There are two truths from, or two verses I want to use to illustrate the truths Um, that are woven through the book of Esther. And these verses come from the New Testament, and you're familiar with them. I know that you are. The first one, read it with me. It's Romans 8, 28, up on the screen, but I want you to read it aloud together with me. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that says that God's purposes for your life, for my life as a Christian, will be carried out. And God has this amazing way, and he does so often, of taking even the baddest things that can happen in our lives, even our wrong choices. And he can use those for our ultimate good, which is to conform us to the image of Jesus. The next promise is found in Philippians 1, verse 6. And I want you to read that with me as well. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He started a good work in you. He started that good work in me. What's today's date? I don't even know. What's the 24th? On July 31st, um, which is next Sunday, isn't it? That's my spiritual birthday. And uh, when I was a 10-year-old boy, that's when God started if we can say, that's when my new birth happened. He's going to complete what he started in you and me. When you put your faith in Christ, your life started. And that tells me this, he, as Jesus as said all throughout the scriptures, but he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us to our own defenses. He doesn't leave us to our own designs. He's got a goal in mind for you 
and for me and God. And we saw this before last Sunday, I think. He always finishes what he starts. Always. And sometimes he takes us kicking and screaming. But God will take us all the way to the end of what he started. Now, the king in this story was a, a man commonly known as Xerxes. History knows him most often as Xerxes. That was his name. He was the most powerful man in the world. He had an empire. And look at the, look at the map up there. That's the size of his empire at the time. It stretched from northern Africa and southeast Europe all the way to the Indus River in India. It included the modern nations. Think about how big this is. Libya, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, Bulgaria, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, parts of India, Afghanistan, all that was in his kingdom. It was monstrous. The king of Persia in those days, because his empire was so large, and he allowed, he had kings over different provinces throughout his empire to rule, but they were underneath of him, and he ruled with a pretty strong hand. So he was known as the king of kings. In those days, that that's, was one of his titles, this man, Xerxes. Eventually, just a few generations after this story, the uh, Persian Empire would fall. And it fell to a man, you, you remember him from history, a young man from Macedonia by the name of Alexander. In the third year of this king's rule, he held a six-month-long party to celebrate the vastness of his empire. And he brought in people from all over the empire. We're just going to celebrate. And this kind of went on for six months of the year. And at the end of the six months, he had a party that lasted for a week. And after a week of drinking, and he had all his big shots from his kingdom there, he said, I want to bring my queen out. My queen is the most beautiful woman in all the empire, and I want you to see her in all her glory. And he said, go put your crown on, sweetheart. Get dressed in your royal garbs again. Now, he's been drinking, and she knows it, and he says, I want you to come out and uh, be shown off to everyone. Well, she refused. You know, this is before women's lived. Can I say that? She said, no. Today, we might say to her, Good for standing up for yourself. No woman wants to be used as a spectacle, you know. But there wasn't any kind of that kind of thing in ancient Persia. And this was a huge insult to the king. And he went into a rage after being insulted by his wife like that. And he went to his advisors and said, what do I do? And they said, well, listen, if you don't do something, uh, all the women in the whole empire are going to treat their husbands like that. And you're going to have revolution. So they said, you need a, it's time for a new queen. And so he said to Vashti, you're not queen anymore. And so kept her, she was no longer his, his, his queen. She still stayed, by the way, in his harem. She just wasn't his queen anymore. So how do you find a new queen in ancient Persia? And we, we were told how they did it. And the answer was, you have an empire-wide beauty pageant. I mean, who's he going to look for? He wants the most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom. And so they began the search, and the search, we're told, lasted for four years. You say, why so long? Again, if we went back to that map, we don't need to look at it again, but how big it is. And they didn't have internet. They didn't have telephone. They didn't even have a telegraph. You know, they had to carry word to the different places by horseback. And this is, again, it's vast. It's thousands of miles, and it lasted four years. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons that it lasted for four years is that Xerxes was gone from the kingdom for those four years. He was off in the west 
leading his army against the Greeks. That was in 483 to 479 B.C. Well, fighting against the Greeks, you know your history perhaps. He lost that war and and he came back home. Well, right there in the capital city uh, uh, where they were located, Susha was a young, beautiful Jewish woman named Esther. Hadassah was her (laughs) Jewish name, Hadassah. And, And her cousin Mordecai, older cousin, worked in the palace and When her parents had died, she was orphaned as a young girl, and he adopted her and brought her up. Well, being so beautiful, right there in the hometown, right there where the king lives, she was, man, you're going to be part of this this deal. You're going to be one of the candidates to be queen. She was brought in with the other beauty queens from around the country, and she became a favorite of the man who was in charge of all these women. They brought them all to the capital city and put this guy named Haggai in charge. He was a eunuch, by the way, smart choice. And he was in charge of all these women, and he made sure she got all the special treatments. He made sure she got all the best meals, put her on the best diet. She was given, she was given more than the other one. She was given seven female servants, so she didn't have to lift a finger. She was given the best quarters in the harem. And this all took a year once she was chosen and got there. Well, after a year, this guy, Haggai, says, this is going to be the queen. I know it. And it all paid off. Everybody in the palace who saw her knew. They just knew she's going to win. But Esther kept a secret from everybody, didn't she? Mordecai told her, do not reveal to anyone that you are Jewish. And she always did what he told her, so she did not. She kept that a secret. Well, the Jews, why are they in Persia? That's not their land so much. Well, that's not their home. Why are they in Persia? They're in Persia because they've been taken captive about 120 years earlier by a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. You can read that story in the book of Daniel. This all happens after the book of Daniel. Their captivity was God's judgment on them for ignoring his law for 490 years. They they did not keep the Sabbath years. And so the land was just just abused and, and, and the crops were not growing like they should because God said every seven years, you don't plant a thing. You let the land replenish itself. And they had not done that for 490 years. So God said, you've disobeyed my law for 70 Sabbath years, 70 times seven. So for 490 years, you've done that. So you're going to be captive now for those 70 years that you did not obey my law. But after the 70 years, as God promised, they were freed and they were allowed to go home. One of Xerxes' predecessors, a man by the name of Cyrus, a king by the name of Cyrus, made that happen. You're free to go home. But here it is now 50 years later after that 70th year when they could have gone back home. And the majority of them didn't. They stayed in Persia. By the time we get to this story of Esther and Mordecai, it's these 50 years later, and they chose these two, for whatever reasons, chose not to go home because, I think, because to them, Persia was home. This is where they were born. This is where they were brought up. These, These were the customs that they had become used to, so they chose not to go home. God had used the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, to urge them all that it was his will for them to leave Babylon and return after 70 years. Both of these prophets said, go home, go home when the 70 years is over. God had in his providence arranged for the reigning King Cyrus to give, again, if you're familiar with your Old Testament stories, Ezra, permission to lead them home, and they should have, but they did not. I think there's a lesson here, by the way, for Christians today. 
when God's people get comfortable in places where we don't belong, can I say that again? When God's people get comfortable in places where we don't belong, we begin to lose our passion for God's provision. And we begin to like where we are rather than where God wants us to be. It happened to them when they were traveling. Remember back when they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land and they were willing to go back into slavery. It happens today amongst us in this 21st century when Christians, when we become more like the world than we are like Jesus. Pretty soon you can't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in the way they live and their values. Nobody knew Esther was a Jew. Her identity was well hidden. The laws that God had given the Jews prohibited her, by the way, she, from marrying outside the faith to a Gentile. That was op- in opposition to God's law. Yet there's nothing to indicate that as she's brought into this contest, and it appears she's going to be the one that's chosen, there's nothing to indicate that she said, wait a second, I've got I to come out and tell you the truth. I can't do this because... My God says I'm not allowed to. Mordecai did not stand up and say, look, you're going to have to stand up for what you believe. And the reason is, my opinion, if I can give that here, reading between the lines, they really didn't have a whole lot of belief in God anymore. They'd been away from God, away from God's people, away from God's worship for 120 years. Long time for these people. There's a statement, I think it's true, that the church... We are one generation away from extinction. And I think that principle is playing out here in the story of Esther. They kept who she was secret. They were willing, everybody who's, who you say, Esther's my faith hero. Well, let me tell you, they were, she was willing to break God's law. After all, she might become queen of the empire. That's not a bad, okay, I'm not going to do what God says, but look at the benefits become queen of the empire. After a year of this pampering, she was chosen by Xerxes to be his queen. He didn't know her identity. He didn't know that Mordecai, who was one of his servants who worked there at the palace, he didn't know that he was her uncle. He just knew that she was the best-looking woman in the empire. Around the same time, two of the palace guards, we don't know much about them. We know their names, but for some reason, they were mad with the king and they plotted to kill him. Mordecai, Esther's uncle heard about the plot and he told Esther, Esther, come here, there's these two guys over here and they are conspiring to assassinate the king. Well, Esther did what any wife would do. She went to her husband, the king. She told him this was investigated, it was found to be true and those two men were hanged. And what had happened, we're given the detail that what had happened in reporting the conspiracy and the hanging of these two, it was recorded in the official palace record. And that would come into play later in the story. One of the king's staff, another man, a man by the name of Haman, was promoted by the king to become his number one aide. And again, we don't know what it was about Haman. He was a very wealthy man. We know that because in a little bit, he's going to offer a tremendous amount of money to the kingdom. He became the king's number one aide. And he ordered that all the palace staff honor him for being number two to the king you honor me by bowing to me and so as he walks in the palace and he walks by Mordecai Esther's uncle he refused to bow 
That maybe he's got enough knowledge of the law of his people to know that I'm not supposed to bow and worship any man. But he bows. He refuses to bow. And his refusal to bow infuriates Haman. So Haman finds out who this guy Mordecai is, and he finds out Mordecai is a Jew, foreigner. So it became his quest to wipe out all the Jewish people from all of Persia, which included Palestine as well. By casting lots, they cast lots, kind of like dice. By casting lots, Haman came up with, when is this going to begin? He came, comes up with the date to begin the extermination of the Jewish people. This is when it will begin throughout the empire. But he had to get the king to sign off on the deal. So he goes to the king and he says, um, er, uh, King Xerxes, at, at a, there's a certain ethnic group. He doesn't identify them. He just says, in our kingdom is this ethnic group and they're nothing but a problem. They refuse to obey Persian law. They should not be tolerated. They ought to be destroyed. And he even said, and I'll even pay for the extermination efforts. And he offered, a hundred, listen, 175 tons of his own silver. That's how wealthy this man was. Well, Xerxes trusts his number one man here, the guy beside him. He trusts him, so he agrees. He doesn't even realize. He has no concept that the agreement he's making is going to eventually caused the death of his beloved wife, Queen Esther. And the decree decree then is printed up in all the different languages in the Persian Empire and sent out by Pony Express to the entire empire. Here's the date. It's going to be actually one day from when the, uh, one, excuse me, one year from the day when the king signed the decree. So they got a year to get the news out. They got a year to get everybody, all these kings throughout, to get prepared for this wiping out of the Jewish people. And as word spread to the Jewish population, what was coming down, the scripture says they fasted and they wept and they lamented. But here's one way, without God's name being mentioned in the book of Esther, here's one way that we know that God was in control. Because the year delay, rather than let's start right here in Susha and kill all the Jews here and then just kind of let it spread through the empire. No, let's wait one year, give every, and we'll do it all on one day. The one year delay allowed some fascinating things to happen in this story. And God's promise you're going to see to his people will be kept. So Esther found out about the evil plot through some of her female servants, and she was overcome with fear. I'm Jewish, and my king doesn't know it. Mordecai said to her, he he met with her, and he said, listen, you've got to approach the king. You've got to get this changed. But there was a problem, and the problem was they had a law in their kingdom that said no one could approach the king unless he or she had been summoned by the king. You couldn't just say, I think I'll go see the king today. Not even the queen could do that. Unless the king had sent you an invitation to come to his court and see him and meet with him. And the penalty for approaching the king without a summons was death. Mordecai says, you've got to go to the king. Well, there's a risk to doing this. And she explained that. And and, uh, there was a caveat. There There was a little bit of grace, however, in that law. And the grace said, if the king sees you approaching him, you've not been invited, but he wants you to talk to him anyway. He He had a golden scepter. You know, those things that the kings held as they sat in the throne. He would extend that golden scepter toward you, which meant, I welcome you before me. You're allowed to come in and see me and talk to me and speak to me. She told him that. 
But she said to him this, she says, but here's the problem, Mordecai. He hasn't asked me to join him in his court for 30 days. I think he's upset with me about something. I'm not really sure he wants to see me. And if I go in uninvited, he'll have me executed. If you're in chapter 3 of Esther, let's see. Chapter 4 is where I want to be. Chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't, you, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If this decree goes into action, you'll be killed as well. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's house, our family, will be destroyed. And then one of the most famous quotes in all the scripture, isn't it? Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night, and I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. And after that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And then she says, if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything that Esther had ordered him. If I perish, I perish. So brings up a question to me as a Christian. I hope it does to you. The question, well, are there times when it's okay for us to break the law? Are there times in our lives as Christ followers when we may be called on to take great risks? And I think the answer may be yes. I think it is yes. I believe it's yes. Would God ever expect us to break the law of the land? After all, the governments are put in place by God according to Romans chapter 13. So is civil disobedience, is that ever acceptable for a Christian? If you're taking notes, here's the first point in your outline. God has established government for our protection. Government exists for our protection, and no human government, not even ours, is perfect. And we know that better than ever now, don't we? No human government is perfect. I hear people say, well, if so-and-so gets elected, I'm moving to so-and-such. You think they have a perfect government there? Really? But there are occasions when the people of God, standing on the Word of God, and I believe that's the key, the people of God standing on the Word of God, may have to rebel in order to obey God. You have any examples of that in Scripture? How about Peter and John? Told not to teach publicly in the name of Jesus again under the threat of losing their lives. And they disobeyed that authority. Peter said, well, if you think it's right to, for us not to ever say his name again, that's your, that's your thought, that's your opinion, but we're going to keep on doing it. Countless Christians from the first century on died because they could not obey the law of land when it opposed the word of God. The law in the first century, for example, said, Caesar is Lord. Caesar, and you have to proclaim him as Lord. And the Christians said, I cannot. Jesus is Lord. And who knows how many countless of them died as a result. 500 years ago from where we are right now, many of the reformers died 
for disobeying kings and for preaching the gospel and for printing Bibles. So government exists for our protection. And here's what we need to understand, believers. Our first allegiance as Christians is not to a government, it's to Christ. All right, can I say that again? Your allegiance, your first allegiance is not to the red, white, and blue, is not to Washington, D.C. Your first allegiance, your first citizenship is to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to Jesus Christ. And there may come a time, I think sooner than later, when you'll have to choose some things and your choice might require you to choose to obey the law of the land or am I going to obey Christ? And as Mordecai told Esther, this is no time, Esther, for you to be silent. I think we're in that time in our country. After the third day of fasting, Esther appeared before the king and he was glad to see her. He extended the scepter toward her. He saw her standing out in the wings and she was there and, and, and you know, he, he was, apparently he wasn't angry with her, but whatever, and he extended her. He, she didn't have an invitation, so he extended that scepter to her. And that's what grace is all about, by the way. It's a great lesson of grace. We all sinned. We're all sinners. We're broken. We've broken God's laws, and we deserve the wages of sin is death. But God extends his grace to us and his mercy to us and welcomes welcomes us into his family and into his presence. So now she's standing before the king, and she has the king's ear. I think she's a bit nervous. She hasn't eaten for three days. So she's feeling probably a little bit weak in the knees. And she says, I would like for Haman to be present as I address you. And so the king says, Haman, come on in here. So Haman comes into the king's court. And she asks the king if he and Haman would come to a banquet that she's prepared for them. And so they go and they sit down. She's had, she has this meal ready and And they sit down at the meal, and after a bit of wine, Xerxes has a problem with wine, by the way, maybe a bit too much wine, Xerxes says to his wife, Esther, baby, (laughs) whatever it is that you want, anything you want up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Well, she didn't want anything like that. She didn't want material possessions. She didn't want power. She wants to expose Haman for what he is. And it's going to require exposing herself to the king for who she is. So she says, I'll tell you what, let's do. Thank you, Xerxes. What a great offer. Let's have another banquet tomorrow. I'm in the cooking mood. Not that she knew how to cook, but I'm in the cooking mood. And so she prepares another banquet. She says, just the three of us again. Well, man, this excites Haman. Another dinner, private dinner with the king and queen. That doesn't happen very often. And so as he leaves the palace, he's leaving the palace to go home and tell his wife what neat things are happening. And he passes Mordecai again. And once again, Mordecai As Haman goes by, Mordecai refuses to bow. And that just turns Haman's excitement about tomorrow into rage about Mordecai. He's just really burnt about this guy. He gets home and he tells his wife, guess what, honey? The king, the queen has invited me, just me, to have dinner 
tomorrow with her and the king. Now, you ladies, you're probably thinking, what about me, sweetheart? (laughs) No, not you. Just me, Xerxes, and Esther. I'm going to have dinner with them. I think something special is about to happen. And he was feeling mighty special. But he still couldn't be too excited because Mordecai. And he says, Mordecai, Mordecai's got to be killed. And so he orders a 75-foot-tall gallows to be built. Mordecai will be hanged tomorrow. 75 feet tall. Why so tall? I don't know how tall that roof is, but it's not 75 feet. Why so tall? So it can be seen from all over town. Mordecai is going to be hanged tomorrow. Well, that night, again, God's not mentioned in this book, but here's God at work. That night, the king goes to bed, but he cannot go to sleep. He has insomnia, tosses and turns. And so he called for someone to come and read the palace records for him. I'm bored. You know, what do you do when you can't go to sleep? How many of you say, I'm, I'll just get a book and chart, start reading and that'll knock me out? Yeah. He calls for somebody to come in and read the palace records, the history of what's been going on, the news, if you will, for me. And in the reading, they get to the place, that incident where Mordecai had saved his life by telling Esther about the two that wanted to assassinate him. And he found out, he says, what's been done to honor this man? And the answer came back, well, well, nothing, your highness. Well, Haman happens to be standing in the court in the middle of the night. Here's another way that God shows he's in control. Haman's not home either. He's so excited about dinner tomorrow, he can't sleep. And he's outside in the court. And and so the king calls Haman into his chamber and asks him, hey, If I really want to honor somebody in my kingdom, what should I do? How should I honor that person? And Haman thinks, he's talking about me. He's going to honor me. So Haman says, here's what you do. You dress him up in royal robes and royal garb. You put him on the finest horse in the land. And you have somebody lead him through the streets of the city, shouting, this is a man whom the king honors. The king says, I like that. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get Mordecai, and I want you to give him these clothes, and I want you to find the best horse and see that he gets on it, and you get to lead him through the street saying, this is a man that God honors. You talk about humiliation. After doing this, he did what the king told him. After doing this, he went home, and he went, and the Bible says, uh, let, me, let me put it in a 21st century vernacular. As he walked home from the palace, he was wearing a hoodie. He didn't want anybody to see. He was probably crying. And when his friends heard about this, because he's beginning to read between the lines, when they heard about this, they pretty much said, Dude, Mordecai's Jewish. And you've already started the timetable. For their extermination, the Jewish people, you know what, friend? Your goose is cooked. And while they were saying this to him, the Bible tells us the king's servants showed up and said, Mordecai, time to go to dinner with the king and queen. At the dinner table, the conversation goes like this. Esther says to her husband, sweetheart, I'm Jewish. And you've been bribed with 175 tons of silver, you've been bribed to grant the genocide of my people. 
Xerxes says, what? Who is responsible for this? And Esther says, this guy right here, Haman. Haman says nothing. He's shaking in his boots. Well, Xerxes gets up from the table and goes out to the garden to cool down a bit. He's been tricked. He's been deceived by his number one aide into killing his own wife. He goes out to cool down and count to ten and try to decide how to handle this because Haman is his most trusted aide. But Haman wants to kill an entire ethnic group that he now knows includes his queen. And Haman's back inside still in the dining room with the queen and it's not looking good for him. And to make matters worse, when Xerxes leaves the room and goes out into the garden, Haman... Esther, it says, is reclining on a couch. And Haman gets up on the couch to to beg and plead for his own life. And he's there right there over top of her, please, begging and pleading. And Xerxes walks in and says, you're kidding me. I step out for a minute and now you're coming on to my wife? Well, you can guess what happens next. Remember those gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, 75 feet? One of the king's sermons, servants, a man named Harbona, says he's standing close by. And he says, um, well, there are gallows built right outside here, 75 feet tall there at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai. The king says, take Haman and hang him on it. And so they did. And the king awarded Esther Haman's estate. Everything that he owned, he says, now it's your sweetheart. And she revealed to him then, he didn't know this, but that Mordecai was her uncle. And so he took Haman's signet ring, allowing him to give approval, stamping on the, on the documents, giving official royal approval to anything. He gives that to Mordecai, making now Mordecai is elevated to the position that Haman held. He puts him in charge of managing Haman's estate that now belonged to Esther. Isn't it a great story? But there's one more problem. The document's already gone out, ordering the death of all the Jews, and that's still valid. So Esther goes one more time back to the king as she had done before without an invitation. And one more time, he offers her grace. He extends her his scepter toward her. And one more time, she goes and pleads for her people and with tears begs the king to revoke the order to annihilate the Jews. And again, as he extends her this grace, he says, you know what, Esther, you have carte blanche to do whatever needs to be done in my name, in my authority, with my seal, and it cannot be revoked once you do that. And so she did. And in the new edict, the Jews were given royal authority on that date that's coming up to defend themselves and to kill anyone who rose up against them. And on the very day that Haman had ordered the Jews to be killed, they were now given order, authority on that day to attack and destroy their enemies and to take their enemies' possessions as spoils of war. The order was written in every language of the empire and sent out to all 127 provinces in Persia by Pony Express. And two things happened when that order went out. First, the citizens of Susa celebrated, and they celebrated Mordecai's promotion. And wherever the new decree went, the Jews celebrated and had a holiday. And a second thing happened. 
Esther chapter 8, verse 17 says, And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because of fear of the Jews had come and overcome them. A whole lot of people be, all of a sudden became Jews. Not only were God's people protected, they saw others come into their family. Story of Esther. Though it's not a book of doctrine, it's a book of history, there are a number of theological truths in this book that I want us to catch before we're done. All right, jot these down. First of all, God has overwhelming power to preserve his people. Has overwhelming power to preserve his people. If you are a Christian, that includes you. He has overwhelming power to include us, church. There's a whole lot of fear going on in the country about the demise of Christianity and, and attacks upon... Listen, God has overwhelming power to preserve his people. Secondly, even when we don't deserve it, God extends his grace to those he loves. When we don't deserve it. I think about Esther and Mordecai and, and, and so many of that remnant that, that stayed in Persia. And the, and the scholars tell us more stayed than went back home to Palestine, to Jerusalem. They didn't do what they were told by the prophets to do. But God still extended his grace to them. Thirdly, God can use anything, right or wrong, to accomplish his will. You get that? Remember that verse we read together at the very beginning in Romans 8, verse 28? God can and will use anything to accomplish his will. Then next, God is not limited in his power. I think so many times we think, well, there's nothing God can do now. God's not limited in his power, but is fully capable of controlling what happens in our real world. Esther's real world was, I'm now the queen and my people are going to be killed because the king unknowingly has signed this edict for all of them to be killed. God's not limited in his power. And then lastly, and this is the one that some of you need to hear today, sometimes God permits pain to come into our lives. If you knew that you were that despised and that hated, if you knew that the law was on such and such a date, somebody's going to come to your house and kill you, would that cause you pain and anguish and anxiety? It, it, It would me. God sometimes permits pain. Don't believe the preaching that says God never allows pain in our lives. Really? What Bible has that preacher read? God permits pain sometimes, but God is well able to transform pain into joy. Imagine this with me as we close this out. Imagine if every Jew, and this was the plan, if every Jew living in the world, and this is where all the Jews are in that empire, which included Jerusalem and Judea and, and, uh, and that whole Palestine area, every Jew in the world, imagine, think with me for a moment, 
Hang with me here. Imagine if every living Jew in the world had been killed 480 years before Christ was scheduled to be born. That would pose a problem, wouldn't it? Because Jesus is to come through who? The Jews. That's the promise. Imagine if they had all been wiped out. Where would you and I be today? We would not be here. Was God about to allow that to happen? No. Was God pleased with all the things that happened in this story with Esther and Mordecai and the Jews? At sta- he wasn't pleased with that either, but God's not going to break his promises. God's not going to break his promises because of what we do. Because God's able to overcome the things that we do that displease him. Romans eight twenty eight, Philippians 1, 6. Until he completes it, he finishes what he started in you and me. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? You may have gone through a time in your life. And let me say, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, and I don't know, most of you in this room, I, I'm, I really I probably don't know who you are. I certainly can't look into your hearts. I don't have a crystal ball, but maybe you've gone through a time in your life and maybe you're in that time in your life right now when you have left God's place in your life. You've forgotten him for a time and you wonder, you're really wondering, and maybe that's why you're here today. I wonder if God still cares for me. I'm delighted to tell you, oh yes, he does. In fact, he not only cares for you, God wants to use you. He used Mordecai. He used Esther, even though they weren't in the best place with God in their lives at this point in time. He wants to use you, even if you've messed up, even if you've ignored him. But he wants you to return to him. This morning, after we finish with this closing song, we're going to have a prayer, and our pastors are going to be standing here. And if you would like, and I hope and pray that you will, if you need to come and speak to one of them and maybe ask for prayer, talk to them about what's going on in your life and let them help you get back to having a real relationship with him, they'll be here. There's no need to stay in Persia any longer. Father, I pray that you will take what we've heard this morning in this wonderful story, fascinating story. You're not even mentioned in the book, but I guess that doesn't bother you because you're working throughout the story and we can see that. Thank you for your promises to us who know you, your children. And if there's someone here today, God, that needs to be restored to you, they've wandered away, they've ignored you, maybe maybe it's been a long time. I pray that today will be the day of restoration for them. Thank you for your providence, for your sovereignty. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.